Thank you for listening to Dream 10X Radio, where we interview people attempting to live extraordinary lives. Our twofold purpose is to both direct and inspire people bold enough to do the same. Dream 10X. Face your fears. Welcome to Dream 10X episode 15. I'm James Capel. And I'm Cynthia Capel. <laughs> and we're back for episode 15. Like I said, um, we took a break last weekend because of why, Cindy? Because we ran until our legs fell off. <laughs> it's been a good two weeks. We've done a lot of, we've, I felt like we've done, we've accomplished a lot in these last two weeks. Last uh, was a Halloween weekend. Mm-hmm. We went down to Farmville, Virginia, because one, we like it down there, and two, because there's a nice long uh, Virginia trail. It's called the Highbridge Trail, Highbridge Path, Highbridge trail. trail. Yeah, and you can get on it right there in Farmville, in the town of Farmville, off of the main main road there. And you can just go for 15 to, I think it's 15 to 16 miles. Yep. And then you can go the opposite direction too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. We didn't do that though. Um, we just went the one way that went across this really high. So it's an old railroad, old railroad trail from the Civil War from what I gathered. Oh, and, and dad says it was actually telegraph poles. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, so you can see the old telegraph poles along the trail too that were that were accompanying the railroad when it was there, and um, we we ran on that trail. Um, it was really cool because the plan, Cindy's plan, was to do an out and back. So we ran 15 miles out on the trail, and then we ran 15 miles back, and we went over the High Bridge Railroad trellis part of the way, which I guess was maybe 50 to 80 feet above the Appomattox River. Mm-hmm. It was so cool. And it was really, really neat. Really cool experience. I was scared to death. It was so high. I'm scared to death of heights. But You did was, good. <laughs> I survived. <laughs> that, was, that was the hardest part was going across the bridge. 30 miles was okay compared to the bridge. But um, we, we finished that 30 mile run. And we walked a big part of it, maybe starting around mile 22. Yeah, um, so we ran. We ran quite a bit of it as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and then about around mile 22, I was, like, apathetic and, yeah. like, I'm done with this. <laughs> well, it's <laughs> this 22 adventure. miles of running straight. I mean, what do you want? <laughs> That's a lot of running. <laughs> yeah. My, I found that my knee joints were really bothering me. My ankle joints were really hurting. My hip joints. It was My joints just fell apart for some reason. Yeah. And I don't know if you can train that or not, but every time we run these long runs, my joints really start bothering me. Yeah, my knee always hurts after we're done. And then the next day, we stayed in bed, literally the whole... It was our anniversary weekend, too. And so that Sunday, that was it. We stayed in our hotel room. Sunday was sponsored by Advil Coffee and Champagne. Yeah. (laughs) Did not move a muscle pretty much for the rest of the day. And then my Tuesday, back to normal again. Soreness was pretty much gone. Yeah. But that completed our Marine Corps Marathon trifecta. So we ran a 10K for the Marine Corps Marathon. We ran or trifecta. We ran a 10K. We ran the marathon. And that Halloween weekend, we ran the 50K, which is 30 miles. And we'd never done that before. Never thought we could do it. And we accomplished it. And it was yeah. really cool. And we did it on our weekend anniversary, which was especially special. 
So then uh, after that, uh, this past week, I've, I've been reading this book called What It Takes by Stephen Schwartzman. And he is the CEO of the Blackstone um, Investment Group. And um, I've, I'm really interested in like reading about billionaires because, I mean, who doesn't want to know how billionaires made their money and how they became so wealthy? It's just really intriguing that there are Americans and people throughout the world who are worth billions of dollars. Mm -hmm. It's hard to wrap your head around. Billions of dollars. Yeah. And I read Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill in 2014. And that book admonishes you to write, you know, think of some some huge goals and write them down and think about it. And it, it claims that, you know, as you think more about your huge goals, you can actually achieve them. And so I, you know, on a whim, I just like, you know, in 10 years, I want to be worth a hundred million dollars. It makes <laughs> With, sense. Cause it changes how your brain operates. Like it, maybe, I don't know. How long you been doing this? How long you been writing your goals? Uh, for a long time. What's a long know, time? Since I was like, a kid. Oh, yeah. Wow. Well, since college, at least. I've yeah. been writing my goals. Have my, you achieved my, my, my your goals? Um, a lot of them I have. Yeah, yeah, a lot of them I haven't. How did writing them down help you? It helps you focus on them. Um, it makes them more pressing matter. When you say, when you write a goal down for the year, like, you, you, you know, I'm always like, well, I said I was going to do this for the year, so... At some point within the next 12 months, I got to get it done. Mm -hmm. It creates a sense of urgency, I guess. Mm. But this was a 10-year thing, so, um, but $100 million. So when I think of billionaires, like if, if I could read a book written by a billionaire and learn something that would help me make 1% or 1 10th of a percent of what they're worth, you know, mm -hmm. bada bing. I hit my goal. <laughs> So what's the but, difference between you and how you think and all these billionaires that you Well, read? so that's why one of the reasons I wanted to read Stephen Schwartzman's book. Yeah. To, to figure out. So he wrote a lot about his life in here. And so I'm like trying to absorb this book and figure out what, what is it about him that makes him in particular so, so able to become so wealthy. So now that you're done, are we going to be wealthy now? No. <laughs> but I do have I do have some takeaways from his book that I wanted to talk about. Awesome. And the last billionaire that I read about was Ted Turner. I, Ted Turner is one of my heroes. I just love that guy. He's like a cowboy. He's like a billionaire cowboy. And he's he's the guy I want to be like. You know, he's a sailor too. So mm -hmm. I I really love Ted Turner. I think he's awesome. But anyway, back to Stephen Schwartzman. What it takes. Um, this was a lot more interesting book than than what I thought it was going to be. And uh, so I, I had six big takeaways from this book. And the first one, um, so in thinking about how he became so successful, I, I definitely think his educational pedigree had a big, big bearing on that. So he graduated from Yale, undergrad, and then he graduated from Harvard Business School. Mm. And so right away, I mean, that puts him <laughs> probably in the, I don't know, top, top what, top 2%. Of the population right away in terms of education pedigree and especially because especially back in that day people always looked at where you went to school versus what you learned yeah 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 and and i um, he doesn't say it outright in the book but i i think his takeaway was that even though he had these degrees he didn't have what he needed to become successful yet yes enter current university standards 
yeah. Mm, that's a whole nother topic. Uh, my takeaway from the read is that he learned what he needed to become. He learned what he needed to be successful in finance by working at Lehman Brothers. Yeah. And I think, again, my my interpretation of what I read was that his degrees from Yale and Harvard helped him get a, a job at Lehman Brothers where he really learned what he needed to learn to become successful in finance. So the experience, his yeah. experience doing on the job work, yep. doing real real stuff in finance is what taught him what he needed. And the connections he made there as well. So it seems like the the, the, the perception of this highfalutin education got him in the door yeah. so the aesthetics of that so you went to harvard and you went to yale so clearly yeah. that's all fancy yeah. so we'll let you in but then you actually learn stuff once you got into the to the work yeah and also the connections he made at Yale. like so yeah. he was in skull and crossbones so was george and he so was what is skull george. and crossbones it's some secret society at yale i don't know anything about it other than the name but it, but he met george bush there mm. in that society and probably a lot of other uh, people in high position who, mm -hmm. who, who went on to, to important positions. So it's kind well. of like a little so fraternity or something? Fraternity with very high power connections. Okay. For sure. So that definitely, I think, gave him a leg up right off the bat. Yeah. Well, sure. is that something I can do to become a billionaire? Uh, <laughs> I'm already, <laughs> I'm already done at that point. The second big takeaway I learned from this book was about this guy named John Gray. And John Gray was a guy who got hired by Blackstone, which is um, um, Stephen Schwartzman's investment firm, in 1992. And if my math is correct, John Gray was like 21 years old when he got hired. Oh, wow. And right off, and he got hired out of Wharton, mm -hmm. I think, liberal arts under, undergrad degree there. I, I don't think he went to Wharton. It might have been Wharton. Anyway, he came, he came out of, it might have been, been Wharton, but he was 21 years old when he went to work there. Yeah. And uh, started managing the uh, real estate portfolio, portfolios there and just crushed it working there. And, and now, you know, and John Gray is my age, and now he is in line to be the, the next CEO of Blackstone, and his net worth is, th is four, million, four billion. Same age as me, but worth four billion dollars. <laughs> so, you know, when I, when I saw his age and, and how, uh, reading about him in this book, it just jumped off the page of me like, holy cow, he got hired so young. Yeah. And what a success i mean just a working for somebody else and it was a huge success there at blackstone yeah I, i'm just really it was really nice to read about that and um i i, I wish i was like him <laughs> what do you wish like what do you like about that i wish i was hugely successful like that i wish i had okay. that that midas touch you know like whatever project I get put on was like hugely successful and made the company tons of money and, and all that. Yeah. And that just sounded like the way he, he rolled or the way he has rolled since he's been there. And um, now he's next in line to, to take over as, as the company leader. It's just awesome. Um, the third thing that I took away from this was the three litmus tests tests for entrepreneurship 
that Stephen Schwartzman shared in the book that I just want to read real quick. Um, he says, if you're going to start a business, I believe it has to pass the, these three tests. And these three tests are, first, your idea has to be big enough to justify devoting your life to it. Make sure it has the potential to be huge. So he's, he's kind of saying this, the same thing that you'll hear from Silicon Valley venture capitalists. We're only going to invest in ideas that, you know, that are unicorns that are going to be billion dollar ideas. So mm -hmm. he's, he's agreeing with that. You got you to gotta start a company that has a billion, billion dollar potential. That's how you become a billionaire. Second, it should be unique. When people see what you are offering, they should say to themselves, my gosh, I need this. I've been waiting for this. This really appeals to me. Without that, aha, you're wasting your time. I guess that seems kind of obvious. but. And then third, your timing has to be right, which is another thing that I've heard a lot. The world actually doesn't like pioneers. So if you are too early, your risk of failure is high. And so the thing that pops into my mind when I read that is AI. It seems really, <laughs> really tricky and a very delicate balance to like, because yeah. you want to do something that's new luck. and innovative. That's almost luck right there. I like totally you, agree You just that. get lucky and your timing is right. Yeah. Because so. you want to like do something new that people are like, oh, this is the mm -hmm. thing I've always wanted, mm -hmm. yet if it's too early, then yeah. you're obviously screwed. So how do you really balance that? Yeah, I don't know. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Um, my fourth takeaway was uh, to... I was surprised to learn that Michael Bloomberg came to the Blackstone Group for an investment in his burgeoning company. Um, and um, the Blackstone Group passed on investing in his company. Oh, wow. And, and now Michael Bloomberg is worth $55 billion, whereas Stephen Schwartzman is worth a paltry $19 billion. A paltry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's just so interesting. It is. Um, and I, I'm not sure. I, they didn't really say in the book why they passed on investing in, in Michael Bloomberg's company, but um, it's just interesting. Yeah. And Michael Bloomberg is a crazy success as well. So that's both are very intriguing individuals. My fifth takeaway from this book was something called the Thucydides <laughs> Trap. And I thought this was really particularly interesting when um, Mr. Schwartzman talks about the growth of China and how China's GDP has grown uh, since 1980 from 11% of that of the United States to 67% of the United States in 2019. So the so basic idea is that China's economy is, is, is on pace to eclipse the United States. And their objective is to become, you know, number one in Asia mm -hmm. uh, as well as the world. And it's, look like, it's looking like they're heading that way. And um, Stephen Schwartzman talks about how, he, you know, my, my takeaway from, the, from reading this is that he's concerned that this the swift growth of the Chinese economy overtaking the U.S. economy could cause an imbalance of of culture and power in the world that could could potentially lead to war and mm -hmm. something that's called the Thucydides trap by this Harvard historian Graham Allison 
um, who's relating that term to the history of the Peloponnesian War. Um, so he says that um, as the United States steps back and China steps up, both powers and their dependents will feel unbalanced, out of sync with decades of history, creating a moment when the slightest misunderstanding, resentment, or offense could topple everyone mm. into the trap of war. And that trap being called the, the Thucydides trap. And, and so in order to, to kind of avoid that trap, um, Stephen Schwartzman took it upon himself to uh, collect, to use his own money and also collect investment from other people to start the Schwartzman College and the Schwartzman Scholar Program in Beijing uh, in an attempt to educate a rising scholar, you know, really smart people in a one-year program from both the West and the East together in this college in Beijing um, using professors and mentorship from people from both the West and the East so that they could learn more about each other, how they think, learn together, um, share culture and all that kind of thing to to try to avoid this problem that he's, he, foresees, he foresees, you know, occurring in the near future through education and, and culture sharing. Mm-hmm. And I was really intrigued by that um, because that's something you would think nations, that's a problem you would think nation states would try to solve, <laughs> which is, takes me on to a whole other subject that, you know, my belief that nation states are almost irrelevant these days. But anyway, <laughs> um, he's trying to solve this problem on his own. And in fact, Barack Obama at the time reached out to him to see if there's anything he and the United States could do to help facilitate what he's doing. And that really struck a chord with me. So I wonder, like, sometimes politically, you can't do some of the things you would like to do. And so it takes somebody like a business person and somebody who can not ruffle feathers to get things done. And then the the, the senior leaders of politics... The trusted third party. Absolutely. Versus, you're trying to take over my country versus, hey, I'm a business guy trying to help us both out. Right. So from a business perspective and some of the stuff that I deal with on a daily basis, that makes perfect sense to me that he came in and was able to really facilitate this. See, that's why I like talking to you. That's a very good point. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very good point. You're so much smarter than me. No, hardly. <laughs> um, so that I just thought that was a, a really interesting take on that. And never yeah. heard of that. The Thucydides trap and potential for war between so the two. Interesting. Two countries. And the fact that he was willing and able to to really take this on is just really powerful. Yeah. And plus it leaves a great legacy yeah, as well. Yeah, absolutely. Finally, my sixth takeaway from this book was uh, in the last part of the book, he leaves us with 25 rules for work and life. And so mm-hmm. coming from a billionaire, this is something you really want to read if you're looking to you know, emulate any kind of similar success in your own life. And so I marked a few of his 25. I'm not going to read all 25, but... Some of these really resonated with me. So number one, it's as easy to do something big as it is to do something small. So reach for a fantasy worthy of your pursuit with rewards commensurate to your effort. I've read that quote before, but... Doesn't Greg Cardone say... I hate Greg Cardone, but I know you... (laughs) Doesn't he say that same thing? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, if you're going to do something, go big. 
So, yeah, love that. The best executives is number two. The best executives are made, not born. The best executives are made, not born. Hundred percent agree with that. It's the whole. It's the whole. It's the whole dichotomy. Like, are, are leaders born or made? Are leaders born or they? Can you learn it? Can. And so, so. I want to have an. I want to have another discussion about this on relative to IQ. Okay. So, but he says the best executives are made, not born. Hundred percent. Okay. So let's hold that. Let's put a pin in that and think oh, about and relate that so to IQ. So many things. And then he says they never stop learning. Yeah. Study the Continue people and organizations in your life that have had enormous success. They offer a free course from the real world to help you improve from the real world. So it's like mentorship. Yeah. Yeah. I think along these lines, another good example would be we. So we just watched finished watching the. Queen's Gambit oh, so series good. on Netflix. And there's so many good lessons from that as well, parallels to what we, we've just been talking about. Like, So she was a, a very, very good, very smart, intuitive chess player. Mm-hmm. Um, however, she didn't have what she needed to play the Russians, which was like the Super Bowl of chess. She needed mentors and she needed instruction, even though she was really, really smart all by herself and could beat most <laughs> most people in America. Um, so she, she had to have mentors and instruction to take it to the next level. So I think that's another key takeaway. Yeah, there. definitely. And at the end, like, not to give away the whole story, but at the end when she is in actually a head-to-head with the final battle with the Russian dude, um, they did it for golf. They did a they did a cease ceasefire. I'm not sure what you actually call it in chess, but a ceasefire where it's like, okay, we're gonna pause the game. We'll come back to it tomorrow, and then uh, her friends in America like all studied the board and called her and said, okay, here's like a hundred different ways this game could go because she can't think of it all on her own. So having that network of really experts around you to help you achieve and show your blind spots and everything else is so amazing and so powerful. Hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Learning from others is key. Yeah. I think. Yeah. But, but still there's that, you know, these, these billionaires aren't on the billionaire list because they're all learning from one another. Are they? Are they? I don't know. Why wouldn't they be? I don't know. Maybe they are. Why wouldn't they be? Hmm. So maybe we need to uh, get some tickets to Mar-a-Lago or something like okay. that. Okay. Palm Beach, Florida and start great. hanging out. Let's do it. We gotta make up personas for ourselves. <laughs> oh yeah, so I'm the founder of... Are you uh... kidding? I'm Dr. <laughs> Cynthia Capel. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm just the arm candy. I got it. I'm the low IQ. You just sit there I'm and look the pretty, baby. I'm the low IQ I can play. I can play. <laughs> All right. Number three, write or call the people you admire and ask for advice or a meeting. It's kind of like what we're doing with Dream to Next. Yeah. Right? Again, more mentorship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You never know who will be willing to meet with you, and most people won't be. <laughs> You may end up learning something important or form a connection you can leverage for the rest of your life. Meeting people early in life creates an unusual bond. Number 22, uh, he says, failure is the best teacher in an organization. 
Talk about failures openly and objectively. Analyze what went wrong. You will learn new rules for decision making and organizational behavior. If evaluated well, failures have the potential to change the course of any organization and make it more successful in the future. Cultures of risk. Oh my God, so powerful. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, it's easy to write that, but when failures happen in an organization, it seems like there's typically hell to pay and a lot of finger pointing. Right. So, <laughs> so this is a really, 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 really freaking hard thing to do. And the key thing is the leaders have to embrace it. Otherwise, it's people like us who are constantly fighting uphill every day, taking those risks and failing and telling telling them why we failed. Uh -huh. um, but if the leadership sets the tone that risk is okay, amazing things happen. So that's, that could be really powerful. Yeah. Otherwise, you're fighting upstream and fighting and fighting and fighting, and then you get tired and leave. Yeah, it's also in software. It's part of the agile process. Yeah, We're supposed to re you know what part of the sprint went well, what didn't, and it's really difficult to really take failure and change it and, and use it to change you for the better. It's really, really difficult. Why? I'm, I'm not seeing that successful. Why? Well, well, one because you document the failures and then you you move on and forget about it. And it's really, it takes an or it really takes discipline to keep revisiting what you talked about were failures to change those things. So, okay, I'm looking at it from a learning and development standpoint, and we use a similar methodology, like an agile methodology, where we go in, we create something, we test it, we revise it, we test it again. We come back together as a group and have an after action review saying what went well, what didn't go well, and then we always change the content. And um, so it's, it's constant, constant change. Yeah. Okay, finally, number, this number 25, I, I really liked also because he says, everyone has dreams. Everyone has dreams. Do what you can to help others achieve their dreams. Most importantly, be a mentor. What can we do to help others achieve their dreams? I think part of this is the podcast. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, cool. So those are my big takeaways from this book. I really enjoyed it. Steven Schwartzman's Whatever It Takes, the CEO of the Blackstone Group. He's a multi-billionaire, and I wish I just had 0 .01% of his net worth. <laughs> so anyway, nice book. So then that got me thinking, um, what, what is, you know, what, what is so special about the, this billionaire club? A millionaire just seems so passe now. Like you make I don't a millionaire. Know, I do keep being a millionaire. <laughs> yeah. Would you really? I mean, a millionaire. Yep, yeah, I'd be just fine. <laughs> million dollars is nothing now. Like you, you can't even defend yourself in court with a million dollars, practically. So, um, that's that's why when I read Think and Grow Rich, and I I set a a, a number for myself to be worth. That's why I chose 100 million because 100 million is just big enough to be financially free to where it's it's almost at the point where it's kind of difficult for entropy to start eating away at that net worth. Okay. Whereas, you know, something like 5 million or a million to 5 million or whatever, 10 million is still kind of, you can lose that really quick. So 100 million is like a good, good amount, but a billion now you're talking right like but how do you 
what is it about these guys? What is it about the Zuckerbergs and uh, yeah, who else is on the billionaire list? Uh, the Waltons and uh, let me just look here at that Forbes list um, for twenty twenty. Yeah, of course, Jeff Bezos. You got Bill Gates. A lot of tech guys on here. Also, Warren Buffett, of course, Larry Ellison. You know, my initial thought was, well, is it IQ? Is intelligent quotient, a, a, you know, an important thing? And so I Googled that and I found that CNBC has a, a quote from Warren Buffett where he says that um, there is a specific IQ score you need to, to succeed and it's 130. Really? 130 or above, I would think. For which test? He doesn't say in this article. Okay. It says 130. It's an IQ. So I went to Mensa. Yeah. I guess is the adjudicator of all people genius. And they say that you need a 130 IQ or above to be a member of Mensa. What? So what is so special about 130? And it looks like if you can score a 130 on some kind of IQ test, I don't know what kind. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you can score 130, that puts you in the top 2% of the population. So I, So I think... There's something, you know, and maybe IQ is nothing, but in ter- it's, it's relatively meaningless, but it somehow helps distinguish you from the 98% of the rest of the population. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I'm still trying to... No, that, I mean, that would make sense because like, the IQ test seems to measure your potential or your aptitude, what you're capable of, but like the external environment would have a dramatic impact on that too. So if it's not nurtured, what, what happens to that potential? But Schwarzman says executives are not born. They're, what, what was made. it? They're made. 100%. The best executives. Yep. So that seems to imply that, I don't know, that maybe it doesn't have much to do with this hard and fast IQ number. I don't know. Maybe it does. Like, I just think it's funny because when I was in sixth grade, I hung out with all the, the nerds, the smart kids in school because mm-hmm. I, I like talking about the stuff, you know, Dungeons and Dragons Yay! and programming <laughs> games. And uh, they were the people that I related with. The, mm-hmm. the kid, and all of them were in the Gifted and Talented program except for me. <laughs> um, so... My teacher realized I hung out with them a lot, and but I wasn't in most of the classes with them. So she tried to, she recommended that I test for this gifted and talented program. And I, you know, part of the test was an IQ test, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think I came back with like a 75 or something IQ. <laughs> and they said, there's no way he's going to be in a gifted and talented program. I married you for your biceps. It's all good. <laughs> So I hope that's not the case. That, that, <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was so funny. I couldn't even be with my friends, you know. And yet you were clearly just as smart as they were and as 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 articulate and you had the same interests and you were able to play the same games and write the same code and do all those things. Yeah, yeah. So that's where I think IQ that's great. It can measure your aptitude, but it doesn't necessarily foster the environment to help you achieve where you need to be. But one of the things I did learn in sixth grade, 
Even though I wasn't part of their elite mm -hmm. club and the gifted and talented program, yeah. I hung out with them and I learned how to learn from them. Exactly. It's how you learn. I learned to learn faster from them than mm -hmm. from my teachers because I saw how they, how they approached tests and studying and all that. And from that experience, I took that with me to college. Mm -hmm. And in college, I almost flunked out my freshman year, oh, the first year. I totally... Uh, I was That's you were in boot camp. I was uh, it, you know, I was studying business administration and I was a D I was maybe a D student. Okay, but you have to qualify this. I mean you were at Citadel, which is like literally an entire year of boot camp. So I, I hated to be yelled at by my my corporal. Right. Because <laughs> it's not like traditional college. Yeah, it was a military school, yeah. fourth class system. I hated to be yelled at. I absolutely hated to be yelled at by my corporal. And every morning, we had to have the inside of our brass and the outside of our brass shined. Was, you know, and all these other things. We had to be dressed to the nines and whatever. So you were more focused on that than I you were studying. I was more focused on not getting yelled at because the professors didn't yell at me for having to do yeah. <laughs> But my cadre sergeant and the corporal did yell at me. So that's, that's where my focus was. But anyway... That, you know, that's just an excuse, but so I did better my second year once, yeah. once I got all that past me and then sophomore year I did even better now that I was no longer a, a knob, but I, I still was not getting the grades I wanted and I decided I wanted to get straight A's. I wanted a 4-0 and I was really, I was still struggling and my sophomore year I figured out how to make a B on my own, a B, a B average mm -hmm. across the board and still I'm, I'm a liberal arts major. I had a one of my good friends was making four O's as a freshman in electrical engineering. And like, I mean, just really, really smart, talented people. And that's not me. Like, I got to work really, really hard to get decent grades. Yeah. So um, I knew the cards were stacked against me. And I knew I had to find somebody to help me. Mm -hmm. And so I identified one of the smartest liberal arts guys in my company, Eric Reeves. Mm-hmm. And I asked him if he would mind being my roommate and if he would mind helping me learn how to... And so I, I was his mentor my junior year. And I, I was in his class, same classes as him, mm -hmm. changed, changed my degree to political science because he was a political science major, going to be a lawyer. And however Eric took notes, I took notes the same way. Yeah. However Eric studied, however long he studied, I studied as long and I studied longer than him took notes, you know, whatever, and I ended up getting straight A's my whole junior year. So does that mean because we interviewed Gretchen Reeves, his sister, for the Patagonia race, that we would <laughs> get straight A's in Patagonia? That's why you got to follow the Reeves, man. You learn from the Reeves. If you want to be successful, follow a Reeves. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And it's pretty amazing that you were able to like transform your habits and be able to achieve what you wanted to achieve um, through, again, mentorship. Yeah. And that seems to be a common theme through many of our, our interviews. Somebody always had some powerful mentor that really helped yeah. them yeah, through, all of, through all of these, these Doom Talks podcasts. Absolutely. And thinking of our most recent podcast, Jim Brown, mm -hmm. who, was a, who was mentored by Arthur Piver yep. back in the days in the, tri the, the beginning of the Tri-Moran explosion absolutely yeah. yeah everybody's got a mentor and so that's one thing that um gives me hope that you know i don't think i have the iq required to become successful but 
I think I have the ability to learn from people with those IQs. <laughs> Steal from whatever I can get from to learn that information. Leaders are made, not born. That's right. Yeah, so I'm going to cling to that. Well, that concludes our episode 15. Thanks for tuning in, and we will be back next week. Bye, everybody. Cheers. Bye.